Welcome to the Bovi UK podcast, where we will be discussing diseases from diagnosis through to management. These podcasts are aimed for registered vets and veterinary nurses. If you're listening as a pet owner, then we always advise that if you have any concerns about your animal, then please consult with your local veterinary surgeon. Welcome to today's podcast, where I'm lucky to be joined by David Rendell, who is an RCVS and European specialist in equine internal medicine. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Izzy. Uh, well, good considering it's nine o'clock on a Monday morning, although I'm sure people will be listening to this at other times. But so this is a bit of a harsh start to the week, really, switching on oh, yeah. quite so abruptly on a Monday. <laughs> Definitely need plenty of coffee. But you are keeping busy at the moment, aren't you, since leaving Rainbow Equine? What, what have you been up to? Well, crumb straight in with the personal questions. Well, I was supposed to be going to Bristol Uni, but I didn't time that very well, given that they shut their hospital as I was supposed to be going down there. So that's suboptimal. But it's probably worked out all right, actually, in that I have been... Yeah, pretty busy with R&D stuff, as you know, some with you guys and some with some other companies as well. Beaver stuff's really busy, to be honest. There's loads going on there. Other bits and bobs of moving house and relocating, all that stuff, it all takes time. So, yeah, yeah it's all good, really. And keeping busy with sheep when you're not doing horsey stuff? I wasn't good. Uh, we can, do, can we do a podcast on sheep farming? That would be ideal. Uh, yes, yeah, the sheep, <laughs> the, sheep, the sheep are good. They take up a bit of, a bit of time. Becoming a sheep farmer is um, yeah, not for faint-hearted. Okay, we'll do a podcast on that later on. I'm sure I can brush up on sheep. Yeah, I'll hold it <laughs> um, But today we're not talking about sheep. We are talking about obesity and lemonitis in horses and ponies. So obesity, it's, it's increasing. Do you think vets are seeing more of this now? Uh, that is a really good question. I think we feel we are seeing more of it. And I think it I guess if you take a long-term perspective, clearly we are. We're seeing a lot more of it than we were 20, 30, 1500 years ago because people are keeping their horses as pets, really. Well, not all of them, obviously, I'm generalizing. But, but there's a ma- been a massive growth in new horse owners and a growth in horses as companions rather than as beasts of burden or athletes or more serious competition horses. So there's definitely been a trend in that direction. Whether it's actually increased or not over the last few years, I think it's hard to say. But the surveys that are out there suggest that obesity in the UK is probably, like, depends a little bit whether you define it, horses are obese or overweight, but we're talking somewhere around 50% probably, generally. If we look mm-hmm. at native ponies, it was a study out of Royal Vatican College a few years ago, 72%, I think it was. So it is a massive problem. What do you think the problem is? Why are, I mean, obviously the horse owner, is it an issue for the vet tackling that conversation as well? Oh, it's multifactorial, isn't it? People often point the finger at the showing world and the fact that those animals are so overweight and they're held up as examples of what horses should look like. And I'm sure that is a factor. There is a perception issue around what horses should look like because so many of them are kept as companions now and they don't do a huge amount of work. They naturally gain weight and therefore people think that is what horses should look like. It's the same in small animals, it's the same in children. It's, we all live in an obesogenic environment. We're all relatively generalizing again massively but relatively affluent everyone has access to more food than they want and their animals have access to more food than they need so obesity is is such an issue across the board as for vets i'm sure we could do more well undoubtedly we could do more but it is difficult because the behavioral side of it is so challenging to confront with horse owners and i know that you've worked with terms of Vitado as well and yeah. I'm getting into her territory now. She knows more mm-hmm. about this than I do. But it's difficult often for vets to raise that question. And this is something that I've actually been quite involved in through Beaver as well. They are difficult conversations to have. Owners want their 
horses to have access to the three Fs, forage, friends, freedom. And they often see mm-hmm. the, the things that we're advocating, which is reduced forage, reduced access to turnout, possibly pulling them away from their mates when they're obese or laminitic or both. They see all those things as negative. So they actually perceive our interventions as being more negative than the potential risk of laminitis. So we are, we're, we're often struggling. We're on the back foot. What we're saying is not very popular. And therefore there's a reluctance completely understandably to have those conversations. I think there will be a trend over the next few years to talk more about metabolic disease and hyperinsulinemia rather than to talk about being obese or overweight per se, because they're easier conversations for vets to have. And they all, sorry. You mentioned, sorry, you mentioned their laminitis. There's, there's a link between obesity and laminitis. What is that link? Well, hyperinsulinemia, beyond that, we don't really fully understand the mechanism. So fat adipose tissue results in increased production of adipokines. I think people often assume that fat is just a storage organ. It's not, it's actually quite a metabolically active organ. So those adipokines cause insulin dysregulation amongst other things that results in higher insulin concentrations and through mechanisms, like I said, we don't fully understand that causes laminar pathology. The link with hyperinsulinemia is clear. There's loads of experimental data and there's data of naturally occurring laminitis cases to, to indicate that, that, that there appears to be a common pathway through hyperinsulinemia, not just with echometabolic syndrome, also with PPID. So if we can tackle hyperinsulinemia, then we can reduce the risk of laminitis. Obviously, tackling obesity is a large part of tackling hyperinsulinemia, but there are different ways to approach that. I think it's a much easier conversation for owners to have with owners. I think we've seen from the previous PPID schemes that owners respond really well to having something objective, to having a number mm-hmm. on a bit of paper, to having something that they can manage. And talking about hyperinsulinemia metabolic disease also shifts away from or helps to shift away from there being any blame. I think if we talk about talk to owners about their horses being fat or being obese, they take that quite personally. They see that as criticism of their management. Yes. Yeah. It is really, but it, if we talk about the fact the horse has a metabolic disease, the fact it's genetically predisposed to get that because it's of that native type, the other factors that play into hyperinsulinemia, so season as well, mm-hmm. just an easier conversation to have. And and what about testing for? Is it relatively straightforward running a test? Yeah, testing will be where <clears throat> many different ways of checking for hyperinsulinemia. So they have pros and cons. In practice, the easiest way of doing it is just to take a, a resting insulin sample. We've gone away from doing that following an overnight fast, which is what we used to advocate because it gave us more consistent results. It is more consistent, but unfortunately, the sensitivity of a fasted sample is exceedingly low. So we will miss a lot of horses that have metabolic syndrome and are prone to laminitis. So we want horses to have been eating a normal forage or pasture diet prior to testing. We have to be cognizant that there is a degree of variability in that because their consumption will vary. The sugar content of the diet will vary. So we have to be careful about not overinterpreting small changes in insulin concentration in fed horses. But it, that's giving us real world data on what their insulins are going up to on their normal diet and therefore what their laminitis risk is. And there's been some really nice studies come out of Bell Equine, RBC, Leehurst, mm-hmm. showing that insulin concentrations post-feeding are a really good way of predicting future laminitis risk and a really good way of awakening owners to the fact that their horses do have a metabolic problem and are at risk of laminitis because 
otherwise. We know from Tamsin's work that a lot of owners are aware of obesity being a problem. They're aware of laminitis being a consequence. They're also aware that their horses are big, fat, but they might not be quite aware of the extent of how fat they are, but they tend to make excuses for it and assume that the worst won't happen to their horse. So if, <laughs> we, if we can use those fed examples and those figures, yeah, exactly, to, to demonstrate they are actually at risk of laminitis, then hopefully that, that wakes them up. It and becomes it, an easier conversation between the vet and the horse owner then, doesn't it? Well, yeah, exactly. But you, just to pick up on your earlier question about testing, I think most people now are doing fed insulins. The other test that lots of people still like, and I, I'm, I'm with them, I think it's a really useful test, is a, is a K-Row challenge test. So we give them a bolus of K-Row sugar by mouth, or the owner does, and then we check their insulin an hour to two hours later. That's a really useful test. It's more consistent than just doing a fed insulin. The difficulty, though, is it takes a bit of planning. You do want to be fasted overnight prior to testing, although that's not mm-hmm. essential. Compliance is an issue. If you rock up and you take an insulin on the yard when you're there, you're more likely to get that sample taken, get a result. If you've got to arrange for Cairo to go to an owner to do a second visit with all the costs that that incurs, then your compliance is way less. It's lovely to be able to do these more controlled tests, and they do have advantages, but I think it's more important you just get the data and open that conversation with owners. And then beyond the K-Row challenge, you've got oral glucose challenge tests, which I don't think many people do anymore, but they're totally valid. And then you've got intravenous tests looking at peripheral insulin resistance as well, which they just don't get done very often because they're not so practical. So the horse has got a high insulin level. What does a horse owner do after that? They've they've got some numbers in front of them. They've realised their horse is obese and that's a problem. Got high insulin. Now what? Well, I think you then you then use the data from RBC Liverpool to to highlight the correlation between insulin concentrations and laminitis risk to really drill the point home. And if they've got insulins of above thirty or so, then we know they're at appreciably higher risk. I think Nicholas' study actually was a bit lower than that. The, the ultimate cutoff for predicting, or the optimal cutoff for predicting laminitis, was I think twenty one point eight, and the risk of laminitis above that level was around twenty percent, whereas the baseline risk for ponies was around ten percent. So. Mm-hmm. Their incidents are above 20 each, then you've got a doubling of their laminitis risk. So from one in 10 to one in five, if it's a native pony. So when we're talking high risk here, so you drill that point into them. And then like you say, what do you do about it? The risk factors for hyperinsulinemia are diet, obesity, PPID, genetics, season. You can't control the seasons, you can't control the genetics, mm-hmm. but you can do something about obesity, diet, and you could do more to investigate and manage PPID potentially, although arguably the traditional management for PPID, dopamine agonist doesn't necessarily help their insulin dysregulation. So you're still potentially doing that alongside managing hyperinsulinemia in the same way as you would for metabolic syndrome. So I think it's really important that if you're dealing with PPID, you don't forget the importance of hyperinsulinemia. But if we focus on diet and obesity, obviously, well, you can presume we haven't got time to go into the details of diet stuff. Um, and I'm sure most people listen. <laughs> Maybe just give us a bit of top line diet. Um, yeah, well, it's essentially reducing soluble sugars, isn't it, to to reduce that mm-hmm. spike in insulin. And that also goes hand in hand with reducing calorie intake to combat obesity. I think most people are pretty familiar with what needs to be done diet-wise. The challenge is getting owner compliance with that. And that's where it's probably worth picking up on some of Tamsin's work as well. Mm-hmm. No, so Tamsin's done a great webinar for us. So if people listening to this, they can go onto the Baby Scholars website and have a listen to that webinar. But Going back to, so we've covered off diet and some of the other factors that we, we don't have a lot of control about, that seasonality. 
what about drug help? Is there a drug intervention that we can look at if those horse owners are really struggling with dietary management and, and potentially exercise if they're able to exercise? Are there drugs that we can look at using to help them? Yes, there are. I think our understanding in that area is evolving. We've had levothyroxine and metformin available to us for quite a time, both of which will reduce insulin concentrations. I know some people don't like it. They have reservations about it, but my experience with levothyroxine has been really positive. And I think those people that have used it have found the same. I think people are just reluctant to start using it. They don't like the idea of giving an exogenous thyroid hormone. And I totally get that. In reality, it does work really well. And it both gets the weight off and it also brings their insulin down where you've got mm -hmm. compliance issues or you've got management limitations and you can't do that with diet alone. Metformin, people are just kind of sigh when we talk about metformin. It, it, everyone uses it, I think, for the lack of a better option, I think we're all a bit skeptical about how much it does. We can all think of cases that have apparently responded really well to metformin, but we're never quite sure whether that's the metformin or just coincidence. There is data to demonstrate that metformin will reduce insulin concentrations postprandially in an experimental setting. And also, there's one study that's not published that did demonstrate that it reduces insulin concentrations in horses that get turned out onto pasture. There's also a lot of studies that demonstrate very poor bioavailability and a lack of uh, response in peripheral insulin resistance, but it doesn't necessarily matter if metformin is acting at GI level. So met metformin's there, probably doesn't do a great deal to be honest on balance in the field. Uh, the, the newer drugs that, uh, I'm sure you're driving at are the SGLT2 inhibitors. They're a class of human type two diabetes drugs that have been around since 2014. There's a whole raft of them owned by different human pharma companies. And they've recently attracted attention in the equine field. There's been a couple of nice studies on velagliflozin that were performed in Australia, demonstrating that velagliflozin reduces postprandial insulin concentration and will prevent the development of laminitis when horses are fed a high sugar diet. So that's really, that was really quite exciting. Velagliflozin will become a registered product. I'm sure it's patented by one of the big veterinary pharma companies, mm -hmm. but I think it's quite some way off in the meantime. Different people have been using different SGLT2 inhibitors, waiting for registered products. And canagliflozin has been used a bit. Atugliflozin is the one that has caught on. I've done a bit of work on that. And we've, we have submitted some data for, for publication and presentation. In a pilot study that we did with atugliflozin, insulin concentrations came down from, on average, 280-something to 44 over a 30-day period. And where we had the opportunity to test those horses Sooner than 30 days, their insulin's actually had universally come down at day 14 and even at day one. So within 24 hours of treatment, their insulins are, are dropping by 50% or thereabouts. So it seems to be more potent than anything that's gone before in reducing insulin concentrations. And what about yeah. the laminitis? Did, it, did that help resolve the laminitis as a result? Uh, yeah, good question. We still lack good long-term follow-up data. Uh, we've got quite a few horses now that have been treated out for five, six months. And they mm -hmm. have improved phenomenally well clinically. I, even in the first 30 days, I did not expect to see such a marked improvement in their laminitis. The horses that we treated were all laminitic as well as being hyperinsulinemic. And they all had chronic radiographic, well, I say all, they weren't all radiographed. Mm -hmm. They all had a history of chronic laminitis. And those that were radiographed, which was the majority, all had evidence of rotation and chronic changes. So I didn't really mm -hmm. expect them to improve 
in terms of their lateness very quickly, but they did. All of them were off phenobutazone or other non-steroidals within a couple of weeks of going on to targetazine. Yeah. And their, if I can remember rightly, their modified OBL scores went from 8.6 out of 12 at the start of treatment to 1.8 out of 12 after 30 days. And the only intervention was the introduction of etagliflozin and everything else was consistent in those horses. So yeah. that was quite striking. And I, I know vets that have been using etagliflozin in the UK now have been seeing similar improvements in, in laminitis. It's not a panacea, but I can think of some cases that have still succumbed to laminitis even when they've been on treatment. But thankfully, the vast majority of have made a really, really marked improvement. And it is hard to understand why. There is some human data to indicate that insulin is actually quite an important modulator in pain in the central nervous system. So that's actually something that we might be working with the human group on in the near future, which is mm -hmm. quite exciting. And there's also, it's, uh, I just wonder whether actually when we're dealing with these acute or chronic laminitis cases and we're attributing a lot of the discomfort to rotation or movement of the pedal bone, whether actually we're underestimating the contribution from the persistent hyperinsulinemia and the, and the pathology that that is causing and the ongoing discomfort from acute laminar soft tissue pathology rather than the more chronic changes. And I'm sure there's an element of both, but it's hard to understand otherwise how these horses, and we've got dozens of, well, I say dozens, well into double figures of these horses that have had really quite bad laminitis and then have gone on to SGLT2 inhibitors and they've shown a really dramatic clinical improvement. So there's a lot more to learn, but at least we've got more options. Definitely, definitely. So PPID, we've got these horses, just coming back to a bit on PPID, we've got horses with high insulin levels and PPID. Would some of these drugs you've mentioned be able to use in combination with Perglide, for example? Again, we don't, we don't have data, but... I'm aware of plenty of horses that have got PPID and persistent insulin, persistent hyperinsulinemia, and that's a, a well-known phenomenon that a lot of these PPID patients that have persistent laminitis have, have, have high levels of insulin, which we really struggle to get down. So these drugs are a logical thing to use in those cases, and I know of quite a few that are on pergolide and on etagliflozin, but there isn't good safety data. But there's also loads out there that are on perglide and levothyroxine and perglide and metformin as much as we would try and avoid using these drugs and rely on management where we can it's not always possible and so there's a reasonable body of anecdotal evidence that they're safe together but i would mm -hmm. we talk we are talking about using unregistered products obviously none of these products are registered for use in horses that's obviously need to speak to owners about the risks and make sure that they've covered that one off particularly when they're using stuff in combination sure so We've talked about the tools that we've got. We've got more tools available. Um, talk me through some of the different scenarios where you would use those options. So we've got atugliflozin, levothyroxine, potentially metformin as well. When, In what cases? Are they always going to be those obese cases? Uh, yeah, good question. And I, to be honest, I think we're still finding our way. But mm -hmm. what I didn't mention earlier with atugliflozin is that it does resolve or has done up to this point in quite well, statistically significant and also clinically relevant levels of weight loss. We've seen some of them lose quite a lot of weight quite quickly. That was unexpected because some of the earlier work with velagliflozin, there wasn't any weight loss. And you, we do see this in human medicine that different SGLT2 inhibitors have slightly different responses. So if etagliflozin is consistently causing weight loss, which it seems to be, then potentially it is the drug that's going to cause going to result in the, the best levels of weight reduction and also the best reductions in insulin concentrations. Levothyroxine may not have much of a future if etagliflozin is more effective on both of those scores. So that I think watch this space on that one. But as it stands at the moment, I think more and more people are inclined towards using etagliflozin 
particularly those that had reservations around using levothyroxine. That then makes you wonder um, whether we should be using etagliflozin for those horses that were already lean and hyperinsulinemic. And I had estrogen mm -hmm. T2 inhibitors would be really good in that situation because we hadn't anticipated that it would result in weight loss. They would just drop insulins really abruptly and that would reduce laminitis risk. So I think I do know of lean animals that are on etagliflozin and, and some of them are potentially being fed a little bit more as long as it's the right kind of stuff. And that potentially hopes, helps with owner compliance as well, where owners were reluctant to restrict them too dramatically. Yeah. Uh, so it, there's a careful balance to be struck, but it, it, it may be that etagliflozin allows them to have a slightly more normal diet and more normal routine longer term whilst keeping their insulins lower. But you've just got to be really careful that owners aren't giving them the drug in the one hand and chucking food into them in the other with the other. Yeah. Uh, or you go back to metformin, I suppose, for those skinny ones that are hyperinsulinemic. But I, I just, I'm not convinced that metformin makes an appreciable difference to their insulin concentrations. So if you can monitor them and you can check their insulin concentrations post-feeding and be confident that they're not going up too high on metformin, then that's fine. And I guess the same with etomoglosin. Ideally, you would be assessing those insulin responses post-prandulate to see what the drug is actually doing. Mm -hmm. But it, uh, it does seem that the SGLT2 inhibitors might be what we end up relying on in a lot of these different scenarios. Well, it sounds like a good thing to be relying well, on. But... Well, no, actually, I'll <laughs> state that back. Let's not say relying on because we that also that almost implies that the management is important and we're relying on the drugs. But it, it might be that they are they're the go-to drugs where management on its own is is not effective. Mm -hmm. Let's think about some take-home messages. How do we get better at managing laminitis? I think. One clear thing is persuading the owner at the very beginning and getting them on side. Is there anything else you can add to that? I think I would just, I would urge people to be more proactive in assessing insulin concentrations and establishing mm -hmm. that laminitis risk. I know it's, I know it's a little bit crude scientifically to be applying population data to individual horses and try to put a number on the, on the percentage chance of getting laminitis, but I think that is a really helpful way of speaking to owners. So just. Mm -hmm demonstrating that there is hyperinsulinemia there and the horse has equimetabolic syndrome, I think opens up some much easier conversations about how we deal with that and how we deal with laminitis risk because the evidence shows that we are not doing a great job of identifying laminitis and even recurrent laminitis, even after we've been involved, the rate of recurrence is, well, different studies, 30%, 60% and half the laminitis cases conservatively don't even get reported to vets. So we have so much more that we could do to get involved in these cases and improve their welfare. And I think mm -hmm. talking about hyperinsulinemia and equimetabolic syndrome potentially improves and increases our involvement for the benefit of that patient. Well, I think that's a fairly good take-home message, nice and simple. And um, Dave, thank you. This has been absolutely fantastic chatting to you as ever. And um, hopefully... Hopefully you can come back and talk to us about some other topics at some point. And, um, sheep farming. No, 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 sheep farming. Okay. Well, well maybe, That's maybe. Nice. I'll, I'll let you talk about sheep. Okay. okay. Maybe we'll just stick that to a 10-minute podcast rather than half an hour. That's all right. right. Yeah, fine. All right. Okay. okay, brilliant. Awesome. Well, thank you very much and enjoy your day and we will speak soon. These podcasts are aimed for registered vets and veterinary nurses. If you're listening as a pet owner, then we always advise that if you have any concerns about your animal, then please consult with your local veterinary surgeon. <music>